Unfortunately, we had some minor audio errors this week, and you're going to notice some crackling in the audio. We tried as much as we could to reduce the crackling, but unfortunately, we couldn't make the audio any better than this. We actually contemplated whether or not to release this episode, but I think there are a lot of good stories here and things that you'll find interesting. So for those of you out there who are listening on headphones or earphones, you might want to adjust the volume a little bit because the crackling can be a little bit loud at times. With that said, if you've been enjoying the show, please go to Apple Podcasts and write a review. You have no idea how much it will help us out. Thanks and enjoy. I was really surprised to know that a lot of our fans are not actually wrestling fans. So there's something that I think we should explain to the audience. In wrestling, there's this thing that goes on in wrestling matches. And it started probably in the 90s when the three of us started going to shows very regularly. And what would happen was the actual audience became a part of the show at that time. Before that time, you'd watch matches and the audience was just audience. They'd cheer, they'd clap, they'd boo. But when we started watching the audience would get involved in the action. They'd do things or say things that would change the outcome of the match or at least change the atmosphere or the aura of the match. And to give you a contextual example so you'd understand what's going on, is let's say we're in a match and somebody makes a mistake. So if somebody makes a mistake, Jim, they would start chanting something. What would they start chanting? You fucked up. And it'd be the whole arena super loud. Okay. And so today... At the start of this episode, Mike wanted to chant, you fucked up, you fucked up directly at me because of the roster for the last two weeks. So I know he was waiting. <laughs> I know he was eager. And during this week, Jim, Mike went and researched and tried to find out if Tracy Smothers was a part of the roster for the WWF. Oh, sorry, for ECW in the episode we did two weeks ago. And he came back to me and he's like, look, he's on the roster. However, however, after some research, I found out that Tracy Smothers was on loan from the WWF or WWE at that time to ECW. So technically, he was not under contract to ECW. And so that's why I did not fuck up, Mike. Fuck you. And in reply, I sent him a a meme of of a sloth reaching. Yeah, so I think the rules for the roster are we're going to change the segment a little bit. There's no jobbers. That's the deal. Yeah. No jobbers. And the guy has to be a part of the official contracted staff. So it's a little bit tricky. But I think actually Mike and you and I, we kind of know which guys were on loan. We know like Al Snow was on loan for a bit from WWF to ECW. And we, we kind of right. have that information. So it's part of what should be expected of you. So it makes it a little bit tricky. So going forward, the roster is non-job guys, guys under contract, no guys on loan. Are we good? Good. Yep. Yep. Okay. All right. Okay. We're going to start this week with our email. Mike, I'm going to read the emails to you, and then we're going to answer the question. The first email comes to us from Ayub Khan, and his question is, Ayub Khan writes, if you could put RVD in a match with someone from this current generation, who do you think would bring out the best in RVD skills? Mike? 
the initial thoughts, Brian Danielson, because right now he's as good as anybody or maybe better than anybody in wrestling since he showed up in AEW. But uh, another guy would be, uh, I'd like to see him against Ishii. They always said uh, Van Damme was a little stiff, and uh, if anybody could take it and, and dish it and give it back 10 times, it would be him. Jim, what do you think? You think about matches you love for RVD. You want it to have the athleticism, but you also want it to have a little bit of the violence, right? And I think the guy that fits that is Pac, because I think Pac can give brutally stiff shots. I think he can take brutally stiff shots. He can be crazy acrobatic and agile when he needs to be. So I think he's the perfect fit. Yeah, he's one of those guys like Kenny Omega that can make anybody look good. Good one, Jim. As you guys know, I'm not as familiar with the current roster, but I think RVD's best matches, right, when he's working guys bigger than him who are throwing him around, which forces him to use his athleticism and speed to his advantage. So I'd want to put him in the ring with somebody bigger than him, stronger than him, like brute force kind of guy. So I would have thought, like for example, somebody like Miro would be good or somebody who yeah. has a power to just throw him around the ring because that really highlights or showcases off his skill set. A Jacob Fatu. Right. Yeah. Another great he's, answer. He's amazing. Okay, so that's our first question. The second question, are you ready? <laughs> so this question comes in from Jay Salkar. Hey, can you make a podcast for Roman Reigns versus John Cena from the 2021 SummerSlam and provide some insight on Roman Reigns' Universal Championship title reign? This is from, uh, so Jay has an Instagram <laughs> address that he would like us to promote. It's uh, at Jay Underbar, 16-year-old powerlifter. Mike, as you know, I was tuned out from the WWE at this time. This is Roman Reigns coming back from the announcement of having leukemia, right? Yeah. Is this the storyline? Like, did they incorporate that to the storyline? Like, he survived from cancer. We want to put the title on him. What was the storyline here? Well, he's been one. Uh, Vince has been one to put the belt on him ever since he saw him the first time. He gets, he's got that twinkle in it. You've seen the, the thing where he's leaning back in his chair and he falls back. He's like got the googly eyes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that that was him when he saw him. So he's been trying. That's kind of what was the end of CM Punk and Daniel Bryan's like little for a little bit there. They wanted you know Roman Reigns to be the guy, and they were, and it was pretty obvious. And people were pretty much justified John Cena for how how long, Jim? Ten years longer? Yeah, plus. Jim, was there like some underlying storyline or character heat between these two, between Reigns and Cena for this, or was it just a match thrown together? It's a, it's an old guard, new guard thing, and and I, Reigns wasn't really over, in my opinion, like on his own until they put him with Heyman, because Reigns yeah. has Reigns has the same problem that Lesnar has, just to a lesser degree, and that's that nobody really cared what he had to say. So when you put him with Heyman, it gives him that little edge, and Heyman's probably helping him with promos. And this this match is just about like the old guard versus the new guard. And I, I don't the problem with the main event like this is when you watch something, you want to believe that either side can win. Like right. when, when me and Mike yeah. watched the AEW pay-per-view and Daniel Bryan beat Miro, we had that second where we looked at each other and go, oh, maybe Hangman's not going to win this belt. That's what you want in a main event that no point. Did anybody on the planet think that John Cena was going to win that match? And it takes away from. Unfortunately, we have a request for this for one of our future podcasts. Are we going to satisfy Jay Salker or are we going to leave him hanging in the wind? Jay, Jay, I appreciate you listening. And if you want to give a, a different match, I would definitely do that. 
But I don't think there's a lot going on with this specific match. But there's lots of Roman Reigns and Cena matches that are really good. Like, I'm willing, I'm definitely willing to do one. Maybe not verse each other, but I'm definitely willing to do one. Yeah, I, I haven't been paying attention to the product, but he's, he's like the only thing really the company has right now. And that's kind of how he's been promoted. I heard the stuff with the Uso was pretty good. Yeah, the Uso stuff was great. So, so that wouldn't be that bad. I wouldn't mind seeing that. There's, you know, there's a lot of story behind that. Okay, we'll send him a message back to his Instagram through DM, Jim, and then we'll respond saying we'll pick another match from the Uso stuff, maybe if that's more entertaining. Yeah. If we're going to do Cena, I'd rather do Cena Punk or, or maybe, uh, Cena versus, uh, Kevin Steen for the U.S., uh, the Universal Open Weight Challenge. Was it the U.S. title? Yeah. Yeah, I think it was the, the U.S. title. Yeah, the U.S. title, the Open Weight Challenge. I would do that. Yeah, I think we haven't done John Cena match, and it's probably a good thing to do on. He's got lots of matches. I'm not a particular fan of his, but I think it's important for us, if we're covering all kinds of wrestling, to have a Cena match there somewhere. But. Yeah, he had some good stuff, so, I mean, we could find something. That's all probably right. just not, yeah, you're right, Jim. That's probably not the best match for him or for Roman Reigns. Right. I don't think you know this about me, but I'm super, super crazy about the arcade version of Bubble Bubble. Like, I'm a maniac for that game. I went to a junior high school, and at that junior high school, we had a Bubble Bubble arcade machine located probably about, like, I want to say 400 meters away from the school. So all the cool kids <laughs> would leave school for lunch, go to that place where that game was, They'd buy a chocolate bar, a pack of chips, a Coke, and they'd line up for that machine to play Bubble Bubble. It was the only machine that they had there. And so <laughs> you can imagine, like, there's this bunch of junior high school kids in a line waiting to play this arcade game in the, like, late 80s. Right? And uh, it was just, a, like, a cool thing. And I wasn't very good at that time at it. The kids were a little bit better than me. And then when I went to high school, by the time I started to hone my skills, I got really, really good at it. And for some reason, I went to high school across town. My mom didn't want to send me to school with the same delinquents that I was going to in junior high school. And we found a flower shop that had this machine in the back of the flower shop. I don't know what the fuck the machine was doing in the back of a flower shop. And so when we'd go to the flower shop at the eight, during lunchtime, the flower shop lady would let us in through the back door. So we'd go where like, you know, she's got all her like uh, tools to cut the flowers and she's got all the pots and plants and stuff that are not on sale to the public. The machine was there. So we'd go in the back of the, the flower shop we'd play for the entire lunch break and we'd go back and so i was like really 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 infatuated with this game i couldn't stop playing it my score if i put in a quarter in an arcade machine i'm there for a good hour and a half like I, i'm that good and my home on the home ds version the ds version has a a classic game rendering of it like it's just a like an emulated version if i play one game on the ds i can stay for like four four and a half hours on one game damn yeah, it's meant Jesus. Yeah, and so I got the score to go all the way around where the counter doesn't count anymore. It's just nine, 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 nine. It, doesn't, it won't even move anymore. So I'm crazy about that game. I can figure. I've figured out everything that there is to that game. So as you know, there was a big movement a couple of years ago with retro gaming, and so Arcade One Up released those cabinets. Did you guys ever get one of those cabinets, Jim, Mike? Yeah, we got two of them. Oh, I which ones one. do you have? Uh, NBA Jam one. It's got a Ooh. bunch of different ones on it, and then uh, yeah. the Marvel Universe one. And how about there you? Probably ones that I wanted more, but those were the ones that were available with like at Christmas time. So those are the uh, ones we got. That's awesome, Jim. 
because I'm super cheap, all I have is the little mini, mini arcade ones that you hold in your hand. They look like an right. arcade cabin. I have Mappy for that. Ah, Mappy, I see. Okay, so I was eager for like this arcade one-up thing to release the Bubble Bubble arcade one-up. Like I'm all hype. And so the first releases, they come out with Pac-Man, Space Invaders, Galaga. Sure, no problem. Mm-hmm. Then they come out with other stuff. They've come out with almost every fucking game except Bubble Bubble. So I'm fucking so irritated. I want to get my hands on this thing. And then the My Arcade announced that they're going to make a little handheld version of Bubble Bubble. So I'm fucking pumped. I can have this game with me wherever I go. I'll put it in my pocket. Whenever I'm on the train, wherever I'm anywhere, I'll go and I'll take it out. I'll play it. Here, when they release something new, usually this is a small lineup for any any new releases here. And so I go to the store. And then as I get to the store, there's a small lineup. But there's a demo version sitting like in a showcase. But you could see it. and you could see what's going on. So I walk over to the demo showcase and these motherfuckers who designed this game, they decide to put the NES ROM inside the My Arcade bubble bubble. So it's not the arcade version. It's this uh. cheap 8-bit piece of shit. I, the fact that I don't have a small handheld version of that thing, even to this day, really, really disappoints me. And I, I, I wish I could have one, but I've been disappointed in that entire thing. How about you, Mike? With gaming coming to mind, I've had we we had pretty much every system growing up. So like Atari Jaguar stunk, Sega yeah. Sega CD stunk, uh, the Turbo Graphics. They were all pretty bad. We we got all, each and every one of them. They all they were all crap. I see. So all those gaming consoles were big letdowns. Mike. How about the more recent ones like Xbox 360 or Xbox One or PlayStation 4 or 5? Any of those been letdowns for you? No, I think they've been really good, and, and their life cycle has probably been longer than, and the last two was probably longer than most other systems. I, I would admit, I, don't, I think it's probably quite a bit longer, wasn't it, Jim? Yeah, it was way long. Well, put, and the reason for that is the online arcades. Like you have the ability to to buy retro games or indie games much easier than when we were younger, and you can just stack a bunch of games fairly cheaply, and then just keep the system indefinitely. Like my son still has. My Xbox 360 account, and he still plays it. We still play here, too. It's good. It's still good. It's great. I think it's excellent. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, Jim, what about you? Anything you waited for in a long time, for for a long time, and were disappointed about? Not for a long time, but it's definitely the most disappointing thing. It's not even close. Okay. So, so in the 90s, there is no bigger band than Nirvana. And Nirvana decides they're going to play in Buffalo at the college. And I am excited. I wait out for tickets. I make sure I get tickets for me and my buddy. Mm-hmm. And and we show up and the opening band plays. I think the opening band was Sibomato and they were great. And then Nirvana comes out and he's completely fucked. Kurt Cobain can barely stand, can barely play guitar, can't sing. And they did like, I don't know, like 45 minutes maybe. And then they laughed. Oh. I've never been so more disappointed and mad in my life. And the, the kicker was that I was the young guy at work. So the Grateful Dead also played Buffalo that night. So I was talking shit to all the old guys about the Dead playing on the night that Nirvana played. Mm-hmm. And the next day, everybody heard about what happened. And all the Deadheads were like, hey, how was that Nirvana concert? And I'm like, fuck you. Who else is with them? Was it just those two? Maybe the five, six, seven, eights. But I'm not 100% sure on that. I know Sumamoto yeah, okay. was there for sure. 
I saw them and they were pretty awesome, but I don't remember. I, I know it wasn't with any of those bands, and I thought it was in Buffalo, but it could have been Rochester. Disappointing, The Offspring were so oh. fucking boring. You could have put their record on and put a poster up. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not big in music, and I've never ever been to a concert other than the one that Mike took me to. And he took me and Bray to this, I don't know how you describe it. It was like a warehouse somewhere in the middle of nowhere in the middle of the afternoon. It was burning hot in the summer. We went in there. It's like 30 guys in a small <laughs> warehouse, and the band is like right, right in front of you. There's no stage. And I'd never, ever been to a concert before. I I was totally confused about what we were watching. I didn't know the music. I didn't know anything. Mike was loving it. He was fucking having a great time. I don't know if you even remember that. Do you remember that, Mike? Oh, I do. They're one of my all-time favorites. And I actually uh, just saw him within the last, well, you know, pre-COVID, I saw him with another he played like his his show and then like another band that I liked before they did it like a show too so it was like them together it was pretty awesome because you know that was how many years ago and then yeah. uh, I saw him do another show at someplace else and at, uh, like right before that one me and Laura were talking to him for probably about a half an hour he's he's a freaking cool dude man what's his name Jeff Cottle and the band was called Game Face at the time I see a punk band out of California really really cool guy that's the only concert I've ever been to in my life. I've spent most of it outside. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's oh, it. That's I've never been. <laughs> well, yeah, for yeah, a lot of it we were. It was nice up, but yeah, the, it was yeah. a seedy looking uh, right. place. Yeah, it <laughs> yeah. definitely was. I'm trying right. to think, but there's like a, it's it's like over by some factory and. Uh, it was a factory district, right? It was like all yeah. a bunch of factories over there, right? Yeah. Coming back to our topic about disappointment or being let down, I'm going to tell you a story about somebody letting me down in a big way. I have an uncle. Not the uncle that I mentioned about the scalping tickets. I have another uncle. This uncle, he, I, I think Mike probably knows. I have this enormous family. My dad has 10 brothers and sisters total. He's the youngest. And each of his 10 brothers and sisters, except for him and one brother, has 10 children. So I've got a total of 88 cousins. Okay, so an uncle means just some fucking guy who's like connected to my family somewhere. I don't even know all their names. Okay, so this is one uncle. And I go to his house and I must have been like... I don't know, 10 years old, 11 years old. And he says to me, he goes, if you mow my lawn, I will pay you 20 bucks. So that's a lot of money for a little kid. So I was like, okay, yeah, sure, I'll mow the lawn. And the guy's got a leg problem, so he can't walk very well. So I take the lawnmower out, and I start mowing the lawn. And the, the lawn is just, it's been growing out of control for a long time. He's never trimmed it, it's never nothing. And so it's really putting a lot of, stress on the motor because it's just cutting way too much grass at once and so i get about 85 or 90 percent done and then the lawnmower catches on fire <laughs> so the motor starts smoking a little small fire comes out and starts smoking out of the engine and of course i can't use it anymore and so then my aunt who's nearby she's like let it go let it go so i let it go like i put it down and then uh they start throwing water on it i don't even know if that was the right thing to do but the fire stops so I'm almost all finished cutting the grass, and then I take the remainder of the grass that's left, and I start cutting it with scissors. Okay, My uncle, I don't know where he was, comes back after I'm done. He looks at the machine. He goes, I'm not going to pay you anything. You broke my machine. And I fucking got nothing. I was so fucking disappointed in him not keeping his word with me. And so that heart broke me, because I looked up to him in such a big way, and I thought that you know, I got tricked or cheated or manipulated because it wasn't me who broke the machine. It was he didn't fucking cut his lawn for fucking years. And now he's holding me responsible because his machine couldn't handle the work. 
So I felt really, really disappointed in how he dealt with me. And I never, ever forgot. You ever have any bad experiences like that where you lost respect for somebody for the way they treated you, Mike? Jim? Well, in response to your story, yeah, you said all your uncles and and had like 10 kids. How, what yeah, yeah. happened that? What was the cutoff at two? Why was the cutoff at two in your house? So my dad, my dad's dad died when he was one and my dad's mom died when he was seven. So he didn't have parents growing up. The rest of the rest of the kids are slightly older than him. And so he didn't actually want to have a big family because he was moved around from house to house to house to house as a child and nobody ever took care of him. So he never felt like the beauty of having a family. And he, my mom forced him into having a second child. He didn't even want to have a second child. And so it was like kind of like a negative response to the circumstances he dealt with as a kid. I thought you were going to tell me you got it right the first and second time. <laughs> Not the second time, for fuck <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I, I didn't expect such a serious answer from you. <laughs> Jim? Yeah, I got one. I uh, now when I when I started doing social media, I figured out the, I was you know in my early 40s, and the only way I figured I could get in was to volunteer for work, like to try to just get into the gaming industry. And I did, and I got my break, and I started gaining a little momentum. And there was a convention in Toronto, and the person I was working for said, "Hey, why don't you come up to Toronto? We'll hang out." And we'll go to this convention. I'll get you free tickets. And I'm like, oh, this is amazing. So I go to my wife and I go, hey, I'm going to go to this game convention. I'm going to, I'm going to call into work and use a couple days. And she wasn't real keen on it, but she was like, okay, I'll support you for this. I have my best friend take off from work. I'm like, we're going to go to this convention. It's going to be great. So we drive up to Toronto and I call the person and I say, hey, I'm in Toronto. And they're like, all right, great. Just go to the convention and I'll meet you there. And I was like, all right, so we go, we have something to eat. We get in the convention. I have these press passes with my name on them, like they're super sweet. And I get into the convention, and the person blows me off the entire time I'm there. Doesn't return texts, doesn't return calls, doesn't spend time with me at all going over what we're doing with the website or anything. So I burn days. I cost my friend a day at work. And after like two and a half hours of getting blown off, I'm like, let's just go home. And we just, I was so mad. We just left. And it was the worst. It's funny. After that experience, I'm sure you never looked at that guy the same way again, right? Um, It was funny because I was working two jobs at the time in social media. And the one company was kind of like, you know, we probably need you to jettison this first job. And up to that point, I was like, no, they brought me in. I'm loyal. The next day, I'm like, yup, you got it. I'm all set. I'm all set, ready to break ties. And they're like, so fast? I'm like, yeah, I don't want to talk about it. Let's just do it. You know, it's kind of funny. I think no matter who you deal with in your life, like your parents or brothers or sisters, we've all got brothers. All of us, I know, have been let down by our brothers. But the one thing that I have to say is between us, between me and Mike and me and you, Jim, we've had like little quabbles here and there and here and there. But I've never, ever, ever felt let down by either of you, ever, in any sense. And I'm going to tell you something that you guys probably don't even, Mike probably doesn't fucking remember, but it hit me so hard. When I was in Japan, I went on a business trip to Ohio. Okay, so I traveled from Tokyo to, I'm sorry, Pennsylvania. I traveled from Tokyo to Warren, Pennsylvania. And so we had to fly in through, I can't remember, some probably 
Pittsburgh or Philadelphia, and then we had a connecting flight. And then when I arrived there, I told Mike and Jim that I was going to be there. These fucking guys drove. How many hours was it? Six, seven hours? Yeah, it was six, seven hours to, to Podunk, Pennsylvania with nothing going on. These fucking guys drove six or seven hours to come see me, spend two hours with me, and then go back. And so, like, if your names weren't already tattooed on my heart, that solidified it for me there, right then. So it's the exact opposite of being let down. I couldn't believe you guys were willing to do that for me. And I never, ever got a chance to really say thank you. So thank you. But you guys have never, ever disappointed me in any way. Well, Jim was saying that he was upset you didn't make it to the pay-per-view on Saturday. <laughs> I saw the nice fuck yous from you guys. <laughs> yeah, but uh, so, you know, I think I'm glad that we have this kind of camaraderie between us where we don't have that disappointment and letdown. But for me, so many people have let me down in my life. People that I've been close to, people I've been kind of very, very dependent on for my future. And I just, I'm glad that I've got this something that we've never, ever let each other down, no matter what's happened between us. How about in wrestling, right? There must have been times where you were looking forward to something and you're in anticipation of an angle or a match and it's going to pay off a certain way. And when it happens, you're like, that was it? Or what? What? Like, did you ever have that feeling or does anything come to mind about wrestling, Mike? Hogan beating Flair. Oh, it, uh, the WCW Bash at the Beach? Yeah, that was it. That was the worst. You know, I knew it was going to happen, but that was right. the worst for me. Cause I argued with people on the contrary that Flair was always better than Hogan throughout, you know, throughout the eighties and even nineties. Right. And some people, you know, just cause they mostly saw WWE, they, they didn't want to hear it. All right, Jim, how about you? It's funny that Mike, because two of the people Mike mentioned are in my disappointment match, and that's the rematch between Hogan and the Ultimate Warrior in WCW. Oh. Because I have such fond memories of that match because I was there, and I'm like, you know, even though you don't think it's going to be as good, you still have hope because of the way it played out the first time. And that match was just trash. Like, I don't even want to talk about the match. It was just trash. So I'm going to pick the one that every wrestling fan from our lifetime is going to point to, and that's Hogan Sting. That build-up was fucking two years, right, of, like, Sting avoiding him, being in the sky, coming down, beating up people, running away, never getting touched. And then he comes to the ring for that match, and I think it was the highest-grossing pay-per-view for WCW. It had the highest gate, live gate at that time. It was like a big financial success, but you have a terribly confusing finish. You have Bret Hart becoming involved in the finish for no apparent reason. You have, I, I don't know, like you did all these like ridiculous things at the end. Hogan gets a pin, but with no referee, he actually gets a three count. Some, I think he counted it or somebody else counted it. I don't know how they booked that shit. It was fucking awful. It wasn't even worth being on a house show. I don't think you were that into that match, right, Jim? You mentioned not like you yeah. already being over it. What did you yeah. think, Mike? Were you also the same like mindset, like fuck this? I had no interest in that at all at any point throughout it from the from the inception to the end. Oh wow. Okay, so the reason why I'm talking about disappointments this week is there have been two guys in my fandom that I've never had a chance to watch that I've always wanted to see. And one of the guys is Reckless Use, and the other one is Mike Quackenbush. And I can't tell you how fucking disappointed I was this week in this week's match. 
And I'm not saying I was disappointed in terms of what he did in the ring or whatever. But the minute I saw him, the first thing I said, this is fucking Mike Quackingbush. He looks like a fucking accountant. What the fuck? Like there's, he's spent no time in the gym. He doesn't have any fucking aura to his character or his persona. He's wearing a costume that looks fucking ridiculous. And it was a huge, <laughs> huge fucking letdown for me. And it's the first time I ever felt that McMahon's words were true. And so McMahon, everybody knows, McMahon has always said, guys have to be big, they have to be bulked up, they have to be like really, really physical or large. And to some certain extent, like I never ever believed that because I say, hey, look at Mysterio. Mysterio got over or look at, you know, some of the smaller guys like RVD or even Taz or those guys who are not particularly tall. They could work. They could get over. But Quackenbush, I think, is what he's talking about. Here's a guy who's got tons of talent, tons of people around him. And it's like he doesn't know what the word gym means. Why the fuck wouldn't you go to a gym and put on some weight if you're, you know, in that successful a position where people are looking at you every week and so i was totally totally let down when i saw him am i missing the point with quackenbush uh, what do you guys think about quackenbush i think he's really good i think he was really good regardless of you know what what happened more recently with him sure, as, sure. as a wrestler you know i thought he was was really good i don't know if this is the best match probably to see of his Mm-hmm. And I, I really wanted to do Eddie Kingston versus El Generico because I like that much more. But this was a bigger match in a lot of ways because it was for the, it was the first uh, ever brand champion of Chikara. They, for the previous ten years, they only had their their tag titles. I and see. And Quackenbush had a whole bunch of you know indie cruiserweight type belts, anyways. Sure. So he would defend them more likely as as the as the singles title for the Fed. So this yeah, he was real... highly credentialed, right? I agree. Like he was highly credentialed. Yeah, so, he, he's normally, you know, Eddie Kingston wrestles a different kind of match too, and Quackenbush uh, mm-hmm. is his, his outfit's ridiculous. I know, I don't know. He's I've seen uh, tons of different matches of his, and he, they never match. It's always like the top matches the bottom, but the bottom he left at home. I don't get that either. I knew you were going to bring that up because it is crazy. <laughs> it's almost it, like El Gigante's I know, costume to me. Like it was that ridiculous. It, it could be worse. It, it really could because you know he's got the top that matches the bottom at home, but he decided to dress like totally contrasting. But yeah, he, he's normally really smooth and, and, and innovative, and he's also got some really good groundwork. Jim, how about you? What are your thoughts on him? Yeah, I think you have to take him in the era that he's in. And in the indies, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of your smaller toned guys that aren't bulked up. Like that's, that's yeah. kind of the indie look at that time like nobody was really trying to super bulk up so i I think i think he's just a product of the time that he's in the outfit i can't defend (laughs) i think that's just the look of an of an indie style of that time and he may have been one of the bigger guys in chikara uh, right so yeah he was that's the reason that's the reason why he didn't make it like out of chikara was just his size you think like do you think that's what held him back he trained guys too, so they had to, he had I think he wanted to do his own thing. Yeah, he just wanted his own space. For me, it was a big letdown. And I hope and I pray that when we watch Reckless Youth, I'm not gonna be equally as let down because Reckless Youth in all the magazines and stuff looked way cooler. And I'm I have a feeling he's gonna be cooler in terms of at least the character or the way he looks. But for me, Quackenbush was a big, big letdown in terms of appearance and what I thought he would be and what he actually was. 
the match, as we usually always get into this week, we talk about a couple of things. We talk about the ref, we talk about the announcers, but I'm going to talk about something a little bit different this week. I want to talk about the ring announcer. The fucking hairdo on this guy was fucking ridiculous. I don't know. It was like a white version of the kid and play haircut. Have you ever seen that? Like the kid and play had that huge high top yeah, thing? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, so. I think I may have had that when I was 18. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> but, but with that said, his ring announcing work was really, really, really good. It was like really, really good. It stuck out. I, I can't remember a guy other than Finkel in the wrestling business whose ring announcing was that good. So I think Howard Finkel is the guy that comes to mind, right? Like when we think about good ring announcers, yeah. do we agree? Yeah. How was uh, uh, Lillian Garcia? I, I didn't pay too much attention to her. Did you like her? Yeah, she is fine, but I don't want to. I don't want to pass over him because that guy. I, I think he does a great job too. And I met him, and we hung out for oh. a little bit in, in at a at a like a little kind of a wrestling festival thing right. in Penn, Pennsylvania. He was a really really cool guy. Oh, that's, that's Gavin awesome. Loudspeaker, right? Yeah, yeah, he's really a cool guy. He's he's very funny and entertaining, and he's that's his personality. He's just a ring announcer, like that's all he did. No, he's he's a match announcer. He's on the match announcing for this team too. I see, I see, I see. His yeah, he sings. He's 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 quite a. He's like into the entertainment thing. I think he's he's in a couple of promotions now, but he does a lot of stuff. Oh, he's a uh, really really cool guy. He's really nice. Yeah, I liked him. I thought he was really good. Okay, and then uh, this is Mike. You mentioned in an earlier episode that I was not going to recognize the ECW arena. This is ECW arena, right? Yeah. It's a little bit upgraded from when I remember watching ECW at this point. It seems a little bit smaller. I wonder if that's because the crowd is smaller. But it does definitely look improved from the ECW days here. Like it looks a lot better. The lighting's a little bit better. The atmosphere seems, I don't know, a little bit more professional looking. And so it's just uh, you can see the steps in the evolution. Is it much different than this now? Like is it totally it, different? It than looked this? really nice last time I saw it. Like I, I, I wish I would have taken pictures. I didn't get to go to the event. I don't know if I told you what happened. No, no, I don't know what happened. We had bought tickets. Uh, we were going to that, uh, that like wrestling thing, and it was in Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. and it was for the weekend. And on uh, Friday night, we had tickets to uh, a concert of somebody that I never thought I was going to see, and I was like super, like this was like I, I was in, I, like I, I was into the going to the whole going to Pennsylvania more to see him than for the wrestling thing, to put it that way. And then okay. also the following evening, we had uh, tickets for Evolve at the ECW Arena. Okay. And then when we got there, we when we got into town, we realized that the concert was the same night as Evolve. Oh. So like we screwed up the date. So then we ended up just hanging out and you know. And then the, the next night we decided we weren't going to the wrestling show, but we we're going to try to get rid of the tickets. So we we couldn't get rid of the tickets. But then as we were leaving, there was like a a father and his kid were walking away, and they looked disappointed. And uh, we asked them if they wanted tickets, and we said how much. And we told them, you know, you know, I don't know, twenty bucks, or whatever. It was a lot less than what we paid for them. Right. And he's like, my son just gave uh, the last last of his money away to uh, do a meet and greet with somebody, and he wasn't able to meet the person, and he couldn't get his money back. So oh. I think we're just gonna go home. Well, we were going to the concert. Like, there's no way I was missing this guy, and so uh, we were gonna eat the tickets anyway. So we gave him the tickets. The kid was so happy. The kid mm. started crying. The dad uh-huh. was almost crying. He he yeah. was so happy that. He, and, and and these tickets were fucking great tickets, man. The kids were – it was probably the third row, but the kid had an yeah. aisle seats. I made sure, like, wow. I was on the aisle. So, like, his kid was sitting on the third row aisle. So that was wow. much better than, like, having some, you know, wrestler sign your T-shirt or whatever. 
I think Laura maybe started tearing up. I probably got a little emotional too. It was really cute. I think the kid kept looking back as they're walking up the sidewalk past us, looking back like he couldn't believe it. Tears in his eyes, like it was pretty awesome. So like I didn't mind. It was cool, like that we didn't get to see the show, I guess, because of that. That's... But we did get to look inside the arena, and it lo- it didn't look like the same place. It looked like it was updated like that year. It was very nice inside. It wasn't that grimy. <laughs> it yeah, like the grimy, filthy little dingle hall with bleachers that we remember. There's no more bleachers there, you think? No, it was nice, man. Oh, oh wow. Coming back to this entire like the ring announcer, the all that stuff, the commentary. Right? We always talk about the commentary. Now, I, I have a feeling that the commentary was good. I have a feeling that the commentary was good. But there's a, a couple of things. One is whoever mixed the audio for this match put the crowd in way too loud, so you can't fucking hear what the commentators are saying half the time. And so I found it difficult to follow along because the crowd's chanting and the commentators are trying to speak over them and the balance, the audio balance is a little bit off. So that was one thing that made it difficult for me to follow along with the commentary. Did you feel it the same way? I don't expect high levels of quality through like the indie stuff because I've watched so many different promotions from, from like the higher to the lower end right. that I've seen so so much worse that I guess it probably didn't bother me so much or I didn't notice it as much. Ah, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. How about you, Jim? Okay, audio aside, mm-hmm. this is the single greatest commentary we've had so far, and I'm going to tell you why. Okay. Because anybody can pick this match up and listen to the commentary at the beginning and know what the feud is, who the people are, why it's important. <coughs> they lay out every single thing you need to know, and nobody does that. And they were a, they're able to they they put you right there whether what is this what when is this match from it's like almost 10 years ago right right yeah. it's in uh, t- 2011 yeah and it's like you're right there like like you're right in that moment you don't need to pause it and look up stuff like you're right there so you know what's really interesting right the two guys in the booth here they're both color commentators there's no play by play guy there's no guy saying oh and an elbow to the head oh and then this to the back oh and they're, both of them are storytellers and they're telling a story and you're exactly right I don't feel lost in the storyline. This is the first time I've ever seen either Eddie Kingston or Quackenbush, and I didn't feel like I didn't know what was going on. Right? That That's the genius of what they did. I, I wish it was clearer to hear, and so that would have been a little bit better. But I did feel at some points, like, you know, you don't have a play-by-play guy doing the match stuff in the middle. So it struck me as a little bit weird, but I wondered if that's just the style of Chikara, because the audience is so well-informed. They don't need play-by-play guys. Like you and me, we both know, okay, this is a tiger suplex, and this is this, this is that, and I guess that's who the audience is. So I don't know if they really need a play-by-play guy, but it was unusual for me to hear both guys being basically color commentators here. Yeah, they've always focused more on the story, and they've had a more or less a revolving crop of guys that, that do it. Quackenbushes has done it, and uh, Sidney Bacabella, a bunch of different guys they've, they've had like go go through the booth. So it's usually not the same people, but they, they uh. do have a pretty good uh, consistency with that. They've had some of my favorite stories over over probably recent you know 10 or 12 years since I became aware of the company. They had some pretty cool stories. Jim, you feel the same way? I think he, it's purposely story-driven. Like I know like the league isn't around anymore now, but I remember – when they took it, they played a storyline out where the company got shut down for a year. Like, and they, they turned into like this little company that was trying to run indie shows based on the storyline under different names, like really deep 
thought-provoking storylines that, mm-hmm. that another company wouldn't dare do, and he was able to pull it off. Yeah, They did a movie. It was cool, man. It intersected with the story from the, the, the previous season and then the one that was going to follow up with that. Yeah, it's, I think it's great to think outside of the box and try different stuff, right? That's, that's yeah, it's awesome. more like absurd, superhero-ish type stuff and cr- you know, crazy stuff, but it was, it was cool. And, and there was a lot of good wrestling. It was probably a lot better than so, you know, some people in the modern era would give a credit for. Being. I see. Yeah, so okay, so uh, I, I, I think we all agree the commentary is good. It's just I, my issues with the audio, not with the commentary per se. Then the match. Okay, so I'm going to give you just an overview of a couple of things, and let's stop and talk about what happened throughout the match. So the first thing is, it's a slow build, right? It's a really oh, slow yeah. build match, and they're trying to highlight a lot of minor things. And I think in the very, very beginning, and I wish we could have had Cody on for this, right? Because when they go into those collar to elbow tie-ups, the way they're working around each other and moving around each other and like fluidly going from position to position to position, it's really, really smooth, really smooth. And like that technical ability of these guys to engage in the lockups with each other and work around each other, I thought was excellent in the beginning. You knew, okay, these guys really, really know what they were doing. And like right from the get-go, I, I thought that, okay, I know these guys are great and this is going to be something special. So I, I paid a, a lot of attention to that. What do you think about I, that early stuff? Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I th- Quackenbush is, if I had to think about like, smooth he's one of the smoothest wrestlers that i could ever think of he, he just he could go he could do a lot of different stuff too you know he could do innovative high flying spots or he's, he's really good with the submissions he does like the the european catches catch can style like i mean he can he's very technical and smooth jim i think an important part of this match is when you see the beginning of it the crowd's fairly split right but they know they know what they want the ending to be so quack kind of changes to like a baby face heel persona during the match he had he adjusts a little bit and maybe that was planned maybe it wasn't but that's a great little adjustment that made a huge difference in the match you know i agree with you but i think the key storytelling point basically listening to the commentary and kind of following along with the way of how things are playing out i thought really the story here is kingston is a student quackenbush is a teacher and he's now surpassed the teacher to take over, and it's now the teacher being taught by the student, right? Like, that, that's kind of the gist of what was going on here. But the problem I have with that is Quackenbush is so small compared to Kingston, so I never feel like much of Quackenbush's offense puts Kingston in any kind of real jeopardy. Like, if he's slapping him, or if he's doing a forearm, or if he's punching him, I never believed that offense coming out of Quackenbush as being damaging to Kingston. And Kingston did a great job selling it, but I, I didn't believe any of it. But that's what? why he attacks, that's why he attacks the leg though. That's, you're, yeah, eventually, eventually, you're, eventually, you're right. absolutely right. And that's where that psychology comes in, where he has to do something else because he, he knows those aren't going to hurt Kingston. He can't win a slugfest. And I, right. I would imagine he probably won a good amount of his matches by submission. I see. He he had like he had a ton of different submission finishing submission maneuvers. So like you know as far as like he won a lot of matches with like you know real technical roll ups or uh, although he did you know he had Quack and Driver he had Quack and Driver Quack and Driver one or four or whatever yeah yeah so he, he had, he had Quack and Driver of, eighteen so so he put a lot of guys away with submission so yeah you, you try to immobilize the guy because you don't want to you don't want to duke it out with Eddie right right you want and you so- want Eddie on his ass you know you don't want him throwing kicks at you. Right. I, I thought so, too. OK. And then the other thing that before we get into like the deeper points of the match here is I think 
uh, episode three, we talked about RVD and Bam Bam. And I think RVD and Bam Bam made you think what they were doing was great because the crowd was so into it. So it took a, a so-so match and made you believe that it was great because the crowd was so fantastic. This crowd here, again, excellent. And I think it took a good match and turned it into a great match. But I don't yeah. think on its own that this is a great match, right? Would you agree? Yeah. Jim? Yeah, it's all about it's about the storytelling. You and like brilliant booking to slowly have people come out from the back. Like mm-hmm. first it's just a couple people, and then it's the locker room, and then it's people right. that don't even wrestle there anymore. Like that's really good storytelling. I love that. I love that all the guys came to ringside, and it was not a lumberjack match. They never go on the outside. And those guys are just there as fans, and they wanted to see something special happen here today. In terms of storytelling, that was a beautiful touch. Beautiful, beautiful. I loved it. I thought it was great. I agree. I, I'd love to be able to watch like a, a like a compressed but maybe one-hour collection of the angle between Dasher Hatfield and Mr. Touchdown in, in yeah. Shakara. I know the names sound ridiculous, yeah. but it was just freaking incredible. Like the, the whole... Uh, up until the, the 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 new Adam Page and Kenny Omega one, that, that was my favorite modern angle. It was so freaking cool, man. It was so well done. The, mm-hmm. Everything in between, it was Shikara knows how to do that, and I, it's a shame that what happened to him because they were really a fun company. So before the, the, all the scandal stuff happened to them, were they still actually doing well in terms of like audience and viewership and all that stuff, or was it already on its way out the door? I don't know that it would have survived COVID. Oh, really? I see. Yeah, that's like, it, it, yeah you know, if, if ROH went down and, and they had Sinclair behind them, mm-hmm. the, the crowds were, you know, significantly smaller than ROH's. And and the talent roster had, had been so depleted over the years that there weren't that many big, good guys left or guys that, you know, were credible. Right. A lot, a lot of really, really green guys towards the end. Okay. So I, then as we get further on to the match, we get close to the finish. We get the Quack and Driver 3. We already talked about it a little bit earlier. But Quack and Driver 3. And Kingston kicks out at 1, right? And so, okay, it's great. You know, Quack and Bush delivers a finishing move. Kingston kicks out at 1. And so I think from my kind of viewership experience, this is a sign of like an all-Japan 1980s match where the match is actually just starting now. Like this is where it starts, right? Yeah, feel the same way. You feel the same way, right? But the match is only four minutes longer, and it's over. <laughs> so I was like, what? Yeah. what? I was like, oh, no, you're just building to it finally actually kicking off and starting. So I was really disappointed it ended quickly there. So, Mike, you feel it, the same it way? It did end too fast. Yeah, it did end too fast right there, too. But I love that. I love the crowd's reaction when he popped up on the one like that. Yeah, it was great. That, that, great. That, I, I, I popped myself watching it. I was like, and I saw it years ago, you know, but that, that yeah. was awesome. It kind of same thing maybe happened with CM Punk and Eddie Kingston this weekend. It just it it kind of ended like abruptly out of nowhere like that. Yeah, yeah. But it was a really really good match. Jim, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think for an American audience, you can't do that '90s Japan where okay, now it's phase two of the match. I think I think four or five minutes is about right for the audience. Okay, and then we get into the finishing sequence and a couple of interesting things, right? Like. Okay, I understand the back fist of the future is like a great move. But if a guy is standing on the top rope and you back fist of the future to his shin, 
you're gonna fuck your hand up. There's no way he's gonna <laughs> he's gonna fall off the top rope from that shit. So I to me that was ridiculous. <laughs> I thought that was nonsense. Jim, what what do you think about that? I think it was fine because didn't they play earlier that he had hurt his leg slightly? Yeah, he missed the double knees off the top. Right, so I, I think I think that's it. Fit, yeah, it's a little bit of a stretch, but at least it fit <laughs> into the storyline. And in the least, it, at least it would have disrupted his balance. Yeah, yeah. At best, it would have disrupted his balance. Right? Yeah, yeah, he he was more selling it like it hurt him more. But but yeah, Jimmy's got a point though. He did he did uh, have the big fall off the top. Right, and then the we go from there right to the finish. Two great suplexes. A backdrop driver, uh, Steve Williams' back, backdrop driver, which that's was brutal. Right. Yeah, it was brutal. And then the two back fists uh, of the future to the finish. The finishing sequence itself was great. Really, really great. Quackenbush sold it well, and uh, Kingston delivered it well. Everything was right. I just, as we said earlier, I thought just too quick to the finish. Too quick to I think finish. so, and, too. And Mike, I think we can get to... three more minutes in there, two, two, three more minutes in there, uh, like a couple more like big sequences would have really put it over the top. Because it was right. mostly build. Correct. And I, you know what I think? After the Steve Dr. Death Williams backdrop driver, if Quackenbush then reverses it and does something big, and then yeah. he comes back with a suplex, it would have been a lot more exciting, I think. I agree. Uh, okay. And then, Mike, you're 100% right. You said to me last week, I think it was off the recording, you said, I'm going to love Eddie Kingston. He looks like nothing. He looks like he should be sitting on your couch in your living room. But he works fucking incredible, and he's believable, and his interviews are great. And you were a hundred percent on point. He's fucking excellent, excellent. So far better than I could have imagined by looking at him. Yeah, man, he's he's one of my favorites. He might even be my favorite guy in the business. He's great. And uh, by the same token, on the flip side, I was the exact opposite feeling towards Quackenbush, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. I right. knew you were gonna hate that awful oh, outfit. Fucking, I fucking <laughs> hated. Jim, thoughts about this match overall? Um, I, I did a lot of thinking about Kingston because to me, he's this generation's Dusty Rhodes. Like when you yeah. look at him, you go, man, I can fucking relate to this guy. Like I can absolutely relate. Like I'm a blue, I've been a blue collar guy, teamster for 27 years. Like, yeah, that's a guy that I want to back. Like he, like, yeah, yes, it's all still performance, but man, I believe that motherfucker when he talks, like when he says things, I believe that's really how he feels, and it probably is to a certain extent. He's not selling anything. He's just telling you what he thinks. And, man, I love that shit. So I I think I agree with you, Jim. Like, he's very different from, like, when you look at the Dusty Rhodes Hard Times promo, like, that promo hit a certain nerve for that generation. And Eddie Kingston's, he's in a different time, so it's a little different feeling to it. But you're right. Like, he's got that same, I don't know what it is. There's something about him. The average everyday man can associate with what he's saying, right? I think you're exactly on point there. Dusty yeah. Rose meets Bad News Brown. Do you know who's on the roster? We're talking this week about the 1993 WCW roster. Oof. I'm going to give you some highlights from the year 1993 to put into perspective what was going on in the world at that time. 1993, Mike's heart is broken in the beginning of the year as the Dallas Cowboys defeat the Buffalo Bills to win the Super Bowl. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, 
Then, this is something from your neck of the woods that I was not aware of. The fifth largest ever bank robbery occurs in Rochester, New York, with a Brinks armored car being robbed for $7.4 million. Do you guys remember that? I do. You remember A little that? bit. Yeah, yeah, that was a really big deal. Then, Bill Clinton is sworn in as President of the United States. The next event is the World Trade Center bombings happen in the first quarter of this year. David Koresh and the Waco, Texas standoff with the Branch Davidians happens this year. Then something that really irritates me is the Montreal fucking Canadians won the Stanley Cup. Fuck those guys. <laughs> <laughs> and at the end of the year, Pablo Escobar gets gunned down in Colombia. Oh, Colombian drug lord Pablo Escobar gets gunned down. Gunned down. Okay, so we've got these events going on in 1993. We've got a total roster of 62 different wrestlers. The last roster, because of the controversy, we'll let Mike go first. Mike, 1993, WCW, who's your first choice? Sting. Yeah, of course. Sting is correct. Jim. I am terrified of this. I bet you this list don't make eight people because I know it's, me it's too. hard. Like I'm really scared about what where people were. Yeah. Um, Diamond Dallas Page. Diamond Dallas Page is correct. Mike. Ron Simmons. The All-American, Ron Simmons, is correct. Jim. The Giant. 1993? The Giant is incorrect. Mike, you win. Oh. Holy shit. Oh, my God. That was quite early. So you knew I'm, it was going to be early because the people were flip-flopping so much then. I know. So, that was a tough time. Because I was trying to think of guys that were like pillars of WCW mm. without trying to pick the guys that left. And clearly I fucked that up. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, so. Sting, that's why Sting was like the guy. He was always there. Well, right. he, well, and that's why I got mad because he goes, I'm going <laughs> to let Mike go first. I'm like, because that was Sting for me. Yeah, right. <laughs> Let's move on into this week's This or That. This week's This or That, we have tap out or pinfall finishes. Mike? Uh, I like, I mean, the tap outs are nice, but but you don't want to have your big guys getting tapped out too much, so you're better off taking the pinfall. Jim? From a fan perspective, the, the pinfall is way better because you can build up to it more. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel mm-hmm. like the second time you see somebody getting a figure four, they're going out. Like, whereas with a pinfall, I feel like you can build momentum from a whole bunch of different ways. Yeah. So so for me, right, the trick is, like, if you have a pinfall, you have guys like Hogan and Michaels. And sometimes when they get the three count, like when they lose by three count, they get up right away and they no sell the finish. And then they act as if they're okay. In terms of like a tap out, you've got the guy like accepting defeat. And then once he's accepted defeat, 
then you can clearly go from there and say the guy who won that match is the guy on top and the guy who lost is the guy underneath. But with a pinfall, these guys sometimes stand up or no-sell right afterwards, and it kind of breaks that hierarchy of who should be above who. And so I like to tap out as a definitive way to end feuds. Who the fuck is that guy? Who the fuck is that guy? And in this week's Who the Fuck is That Guy, our last segment this week, we've got 11 rounds. 11 rounds. And by round 8, this is over. There is no way it goes past round 8. So that's where your cutoff should be. Goes past round 8, you should think that I won. (laughs) Okay, last time. Jim, you won, right? So we're going to start. Oh, nobody won. Nobody won. Oh, nobody won. Nobody won. That's right. I, it was at the end. Mike had a chance. I was mad, but miss, I didn't win. Miss Atlanta, yeah, Miss Atlanta Lively. Okay. So, uh, we had nobody win last time, but I think we'll start. You won. So, I and won, you right? Won. Yeah, so I you won. you get to pick so, who yeah. goes first. All right. So, I think Jim never lost his title, right? He lost by, like, a countout, so he didn't lose the belt. So, we're going back to Jim. Jim, you'll get the first uh, round this week. So, who the fuck is that guy? Round one. Crazy Dave. T-Star. Good guess, but wrong. Mike. Black Heart Apocalypse. Dave Hogan? Incredible. Jim, round three. The Warlock. Purple Haze. Wrong answer. Mike, round four. The Black Phantom. Tony Anthony. (laughs) Wrong answer. You'll never guess it was Tony Anthony after this next guess. Uh, uh, Round six. Five. Uh, Sorry, round five. Vampiro Guerrero. Um, ass. Okay. Mike, round six. Lestat the Vampire. Gangrel. Oh! <laughs> That's what I thought Why when you said the last one before that. Oh, oh very good. So his total, total number of characters are 11. Round one, Crazy Dave. Round two, Blackheart Apocalypse. <laughs> Round three, The Warlock. Round four, The Black Phantom. Round five, Vampiro Guerrero. Round six, Lestat the Vampire. Round seven, Vampire Master. Round eight, Vampire Warrior, which I think is where you both would have Yeah, I would have got that. Yeah. yeah. And then round nine, Pretty Boy Dave Heath. Then wow. round 10, David Heath. And then round 11, Gangrel. Very good, Mike. Very good. So we've heard what you've had to say, and a lot of you are saying that you love the discussion that we have amongst each other, but you're not really interested in wrestling that much. 
a thing that ruined it a little bit for me was I was standing next to my fucking useless brother. So <laughs> that wasn't. <laughs> You, you told me we're doing Sting Invader. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you about from 35 years ago. <laughs> I didn't have any friends in Buffalo at the time, so I wasn't familiar with Buffalo at all. It was just a dirty place on the other side of the border. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Freaked the hell out of me when I looked at the rankings and I saw Conan, Austin, Jericho, us. <laughs> <laughs> it's hilarious, right? It's crazy. You don't want to listen to all that wrestling bullshit, then follow us on YouTube. On YouTube, we'll cut up all the intro segments and some of the games and post them on there as clips. And so if you're not interested in the matches, go over to YouTube and subscribe to our channel. It's Six Man Tag Podcast. It's time for you to tag in. Don't forget to like and subscribe. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to write to us at sixmanpodcast at gmail.com. For now, it's time to tag out. What?